two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Derek Alton, and we are here at the 2022 Code for America conference in Arlington, Virginia. And this is a quick dispatch of stories from the Open Gov, as we are joined by a special guest, a personal hero of mine, Alex Howard, who's also known on Twitter as Digifile. Uh, he is the director of digital democracy, the digit, excuse me, he is the director of digital democracy project. So Derek, help me give Alex a real big welcome here. Hello, Alex. How's it oh. going? There you go. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks, fellas. It's good to see you here. Down south of the border. I hope to come back to Ottawa sometime soon. Absolutely. Well, we'd you love left, to have you. Yeah, you left, a, you left a mark in Ottawa, which I think a lot of us appreciated, but we won't talk about that just now. Mm. We... Had a, uh, we were talking very loosely, just the three of us, and said, we got to record this. We're talking about how things are trending in the United States and Canada in terms of open government, open data. We think we're making a lot of headway, but you are very good at giving people a bit of a reality check as to what's going on. So share with, uh, with, with the audience what you were just sharing with us a few moments ago. Sure. Well, the arc of the country's history, I think, is one that is towards progress, right? Towards self-determination, towards more transparency, towards more collaboration, um, towards more, uh, of, I think, equitable systems that are open to all of the people. And that's not how we were founded, of course, right? This is a country that uh, was founded upon slavery. All of our, our colonies allowed it, um, where women didn't have the road and, uh, vote, indigenous peoples didn't have the vote. Um, and we didn't have a freedom of information law at the start. I think Sweden gets credit for a couple hundred years ago before most players. Um, and ours was pretty recent, right? It's uh, post-Watergate. It's um, So open government is a continuum. It's a gradient. We always go forward to go backward. Um, how are things going? Well, uh, how is corruption going in our country? How is our knowledge of what's being done in the halls of power at the state local level? Uh, what's the status of press freedom? Um, what's the status of censorship? Um, how open do people feel like they're able to be speaking, right? Um, how uh, much freedom is the press operating in? Now, the good news is I think we're doing pretty well compared to what we used to be. We're certainly doing very well compared to where other countries are right now. There are many authoritarian nations when you cannot speak freely, you cannot assemble, you cannot report accurately. Um, and we all, I think, have seen very prominently where journalists are being killed, which is a really good element, right? If you look at how things are going, take a look at that. It's like an indicator species. If you know anything about biology, look at for the amphibians. If the frogs go away, you got a problem in your water, right? If you don't have turtles in your pond, there's probably something there. Journalists are the indicators for open government and democracy. That's a great way to okay. think about it. So yeah. if you look at what's happening, are they being jailed? Are they being beaten? Are they being sued? Are they leaving the profession because it's not well paid and people don't like them? That's a pretty good indicator of how things are going. This is, and for, for most people, um, they think about journalists as people on television, but most journalists are not, right? The vast majority are people working at the local level, and in that count, the news is very bad. The industry is cratering. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some are the industry's fault. Some are changes in technology. Some are failures of vision by government and elsewhere. 
but I guess the question I have is, is the industry cratering or is it changing? Like, there's a whole new of like web journalists that are, are popping up, mm -hmm. and an, an explosion of uh, increased diversity of voices that never had a mic before sure. are finding a mic and finding space. Yep. So these things are happening simultaneously at the same time. The uh, replacement of reporters at the state and local level is not happening anywhere near fast enough on the digital side to make up for the thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs that are going away. Um, it's, again, uh, technology is a big part of this, but um, there's been systemic failures to anticipate this coming and then to protect the function of journalism itself, not to protect the papers or the stations, but to invest in making sure that the accountability journalism that's necessary to inform people, to hold candidates to account, to tamp down on corruption, to focus on what's happening at the local level as part of a community, that is going away. And it's going away fast, and people have been warning about it for years. And the policy levers that we could use are pretty clear, right? We can't be investing in something like a PBS for the internet. You can see how things go. If we had something like a BBC for every state house, we'd be better off. If we had funding which made sure that investigative journalism could continue to occur and would be protected against powerful people suing it under, we'd be in a better place. Um, if we also had, I think, a cohesive national movement which venerated journalists as being the immune system of democracy, as opposed to enemies of the people, as the last president said, falsely, right? Sounds like Mao, sounds like Stalin. How are things going? Well, this is a good example. I mean, we just had an insurrection here less than two years ago, predicated on the basis of a falsehood, a lie. A large part of a major party believes that lie and also believes other falsehoods, conspiracy theories, that, that, that um, some of the greatest marvels of humankind, vaccines, don't work, and as a result, result are dying. And when you have that kind of systemic failure, it doesn't matter if the strength of your freedom of information law is, is good. It matters whether people feel like they can trust the information that they're getting. And what's happened now is we're in a very perilous place, post-truth. Post-truth is pre-fascism. We are in a state where a large amount of people don't trust anything. They don't trust government. They don't trust media. They don't even trust their neighbors anymore because their neighbors aren't acting trustworthy. And when that happens, it creates the conditions for authoritarianism at the state, local level, or federal level. And that's what we're staring into right now. Our country is, uh, I think, significantly worse off than Canada in this concept. Um, for many reasons we could go into, but things are not trending well here. So I guess a question I have around this, so you talked about generally speaking in terms of the arc of history of you know, the last while, there seems to be a trend towards greater transparency and greater openness until the last couple of years, or last couple of decades maybe. Um, I guess the question I have is, because like, yeah, like a lot of the indicators around democracy globally are showing downward trends all over the place. The question is, is this an enigma? Like, is this just a, a blip that's a decade or two or three long year blip? Or is this a new trend? Is the, are we heading in a new direction now? And the trend is a long-term movement, yep. a long-term slide away from democracy towards authoritarianism, towards things that are quite scary. Um, so there's organizations that track this for a living. You can go to Freedom House, that's one of them. Uh, the uh, Economist and Intelligence Unit, like they, they look and rate the quality of democracy, see how things are going. Um, and in my youth, 
uh, we went from the 80s into the 90s, and there was a lot of excitement. If you were think back to that time, uh, Glasnost and the USSR breaking up something that looked kind of democratic there. Um, you had all of the former Soviet countries becoming self-determined, right? There's a big fight about that right now in Ukraine. But China um, made a big switch in that time as well. Well, I put them in a different category. Um, they're... They've never uh, really embraced democracy. That's always a one-party authoritarian system. And the thing to realize is that it's, re it's, it's rarely binary. You don't have like uh, uh, totalitarian dictatorships in too many places like North Korea, right? Instead, what you have are flawed or captured states where you have some of the appearances of democracy, right? There's a Duma in Russia, right? There mm -hmm. are people who get elected in China without the reality of the thing, right? Window what, dressing. Yeah. Um, sure, or we say trans tra transparency theater. So it's mm. always a question of um, who is transparent about what. So this question about how are things going? Well, we're still fighting really hard for some basic transparency in our country about who owns what company. Beneficial ownership is how we say it in the good governance land. But like, look at all these limited liability corporations. Look at all these shadow companies. Who owns things? And anybody who works in crime and corruption or, or, or not works for it, right, but works against these things, ideally, knows that those identities are really important and that corporations um, are really invested often in not being transparent, and some politicians are too. You know, I think that the laws have tended to trend in the right direction, certainly since the 60s, 70s, provoked by these great issues. What we're having right now in our country is a huge fight about whether and how those laws are going to be able to get through when an, uh, a party that has constitutional welfare obstructs them, while at the same time seeking to subvert democracy itself. I got a question for you because we are short on time and you need to go in a few moments, but you've, you know, you've given us that reality, reality check that I was asking for a moment ago, but at the same time, I'm going to reverse the table on you. Supreme being, ultimate power, president, whatever, what is the one act that you would take to reverse this trend, whether it's a law, whether it's generally a culture change, a policy, yep. something along those lines. What is the one thing that can stop this progress from happening yep. or regress? Uh, so a great book, if you and your readers want to take a look, is Fiona Hill's book. She's extraordinary. She comes out of the North Country in the UK. Um, and she came to the United States and through this whole series of investments in her education and her opportunity um, and rose up to be our nation's, one of our nation's top experts on, on Russia. She became very prominent because of our politics and corruption, impeachment, etc. But her book's really important because it looks at what happened in her country, what happened in the Soviet Union, now Russia, and here. And lays bare the trends outsourcing, automation, and the devastation in communities when industries move out. Their coal country, our coal country, same kinds of problems. And that same thing, that's happening the same time that there's demographic changes and rapid fire cultural changes in the last 20 years, as you've seen, that um, both combine together to give people in these places that have lost opportunity a sense of, of powerlessness and disempowerment, the same time, maybe the same words, right? What I do is to try to create a new sense of civic nationalism around a cohesive identity in which we are all equal before the law, we are all citizens, we all have equal rights, and we all have equal opportunity. 
and that there's now a specific stepping stone for you to plug in and be part of making the country better. Code for America is a, a fine example of that, but it's tiny compared to the need. What we need as a country, other countries too though, is not to let people who focus on religious or ethnic nationalism to own the conversation about what patriotism is. Instead, it's to define it differently and for the president to invest with Congress in a new national service opportunity where you go in for one, two, three years and that service brings you into contact with Americans from everywhere else and creates shared national identity and then that service leads to opportunity in education and careers, in apprenticeships, in vocational work, in professional schooling, and that if you serve, we have a GI Bill, so people understand this, you can then go to school, which is still the national ladder up, and have ability to tap into benefits which support you for doing that. For the people who don't go to college in our country, and to be clear, that's most of us still, it's about a third of Americans get a college degree. The top two reasons are that it costs too much or they need to work or that they don't, they don't feel like they need it. Now, there are glaring needs we have right now around climate, around environment, around health, around infrastructure right now. These things have precedent in our history, Civilian Conservation Corps under FDR. But what we need is to unlock that. And the way we do that is to give people a way to serve, to be connected to everybody. When you're exposed to people who are different than you, different religion, different race, different gender, different regionality, and you're with each other, it changes. One of the most diverse institutions in American life is our military, right? Mm, that's true. And when people are in there, they become part of a unit. And things drop away because you're part of the unit and when you're working together on these goals. But that isn't enough. That's a tiny portion of us. To bring us back to a better place, to make us whole, we need to get to e pluribus unum, out of many one, and bring us back towards a sense that this shared identity is something we can invest in because you won't be left behind. There's a terrible toxic lie with a lot of conspiracies thrown around right now into this post-truth space. People feel like their country is being taken away as opposed to our country is lifting us all up together. Yeah. That's what I'd say to do. I don't particularly go for supreme beings. I like elected leaders who leave after four to eight years. Well, I was going to say, you know, but, 2024. Well, I believe there's an uh, incumbent who's going to be running. And, uh, you know, unless uh, the former president dies or is indicted, it'll be him. And then we'll see how this competing visions work out. But right now, we need to figure out a way to pull people into being part of the solution and give them a way to serve that then gives them opportunity that everyone mm. feels is equitable. Yeah. You can see the provocation when you say, forgive college students their loans, forgive college graduates their loans. People didn't go to college, say, so what's the fairness of that? So I say, well, let's flip this around. Let's trade this, let's make a deal. You serve, you plug in, and we'll make sure that there's a deal for you, right? It's a good deal. If you achieve, if you scrub in, it doesn't matter. If you're from somewhere else, it doesn't matter. If you're from a different neighborhood, it doesn't matter if what you look like, what God you worship, or if you worship no God at all, something that's not very popular here, you still get a chance. I mean, it kind of puts in the sweat equity into the, the country. Yeah, people uh, respect sweat equity. They, they respect you giving something to get something, not mm -hmm. free, because there's a lot of anxiety about giving other people your thing. And instead, it needs to be giving your fellow Americans our thing 
and seeing the impact of that, especially in the communities that are being left behind by very quick changing technology, automation, outsourcing, all the decisions that we've made because of corporate influence that have been great for the bottom lines, great for stock market, great for the executives, but have not worked out for workers. And that's not something that is tenable. If you have widening inequality, and you continue to have people making vast amounts of money without that being part of a greater pot, it will lead to anger and worse. And we know that from history. I don't particularly want that. I'm sure Canada does neither, because <laughs> then you're going to have to deal with a bunch of Americans yeah. um, coming up from the border. Now, you're going to have a problem with that no matter what. You, you know. I mean, technically, but. that's how Canada was formed. It was in a response to a bunch of Americans coming up from the border. Well, I, I think it had something to do with the uh, uh, French and English government, as I recall. <laughs> it was a, a wee bit of, of uh, empires being built up there. It definitely was, but it was also in response to the Civil War. And the oh. Civil War was happening, and, and that yeah. created the impetus that caused yep. those groups who were fighting with each other to yep. say, we need to come together. Well, you, you all still are, I, I think, uh, paying homage to a queen, too. So we gotta, we got we to gotta work out this whole Commonwealth business. I mean, the, the open gov conversation became a geopolitical one, a well, historical geopolitical one, which there's yeah. it does contextually inform yeah. our direction going forward, without a doubt. Well, I, it's it's always helpful to go back to first principles. Why do we do government like this? Like, what the constitutional monarchy is not so bad. Republics better, right? Representational democracy is my favorable end state. Theocracy, totalitarian dictatorship, not so great, right? Fascist, really bad. Like historically, that's a terrible idea. So we got to figure out how to not go back to the worst of America, which was apartheid states up yeah. until '65 but how to build something that is better. And this is not the slogan the White House picked out, but it's literally saying that we need to take this great disruption that the, the pandemic has presented and the rising tide of authoritarianism around the world and show people that democracy works, which is, yes, by delivery, something we talk about here, but also by finding everybody who's being left behind and hopeless and giving them hope. That was why the depression was so painful for us as a country because people had lost hope. And we made a whole bunch of decisions during that time that still are down today that are about who we are as a nation. We're not supposed to let people go hungry or go unhoused. We're not supposed to let people be the victim of corrupt services. We're not supposed to let people, and this took a while, not be able to vote on the basis of some discriminated category. And that's where our big fight is right now. And I will say yeah. that is the one thing that always shocks me in the United States. In Canada, it's so much simpler to vote. No long lineups. It's and you hear gerrymandering everything around the voting the, system. And and real quick, just final thought. I did read a book on Canadian voting a few years ago, and I'm assuming the same is true in the United States. That while we think the the franchise of voting is a linear progression, it actually grows and constricts through time in that sometimes people are more franchised and some people get disenfranchised through the process. Is that something that happens in the United States uh, frequently, would you say, that it's kind of like a, a beating heartbeat, it grows, shrinks, grows, shrinks, in a general positive direction? Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the franchise has been embiggened um, now, uh, year over year, decade over decade, century over century. It's the story of us. It's the, one of the best parts of us. It is the thing that um, I think we can tell the rest of the world that we did, right? Which is to have a peaceful civil rights movement, which finally 
brought the rest of the country around to the reality of life in segregated states, that they did not have the ability to elect their own leaders and to stop terrible, terrible conditions. The question now is whether we can achieve greater voter participation, because even in the last election, it was still only two-thirds of eligible voters. And it's always worth remembering that in our country, we make many voters ineligible. Right? There are many people who can't vote but are still subject to the same laws. There are, I think, reasonable reasons to change that. Some people feel very strongly about um, having people vote in prison. I say once you're out, you should get it back. But there are many states which actively fight against that. Um, and there are many which also engage in shenanigans, not enough polling places, weird hours, all kinds of constraints to try to make it so difficult that people don't come out. And there are simple solutions to this. It's just a matter of getting them through Congress. If you have a counter-majoritarian party which has a disincentive because it's received constitutional welfare through yeah. an electoral system that gives rural states more power. And until, less than until we have um, a, a government that has enough of a plurality to change the structural incentives to get people to compete for votes, then we're in trouble. And it's interesting, you mentioned gerrymandering. Maps just came down in New York. People are very upset in the Democratic Party about it because they created competitive districts. They're, com they're making existing people run against each other. Um, the reality of it, of course, is that there are two rules now. There's rules where there in New York, a state with corruption issues, but nonetheless, one that is trying to get to the point of having competitive races because that's good for democracy, and other states where they're allowing racial gerrymandering to stay which is specifically designed to disempower minority populations from having the self-determination that's necessary. And unless we see a huge shift where people come out to vote, we are going to go backwards. And unless we see, I think, awareness and media that we are at great risk of slipping towards a flawed, captured democracy that looks a lot more like Hungary, in states where constitutional rights that we thought were given are now being repealed, we're headed for a world of hurt. And I'm a, I'm a professional nonpartisan, but I'm a democracy advocate, right? I'm a freedom of information advocate. Um, you can't come for those things and not have me say this is a problem. And if that is associated with a party, it presents a real issue. But that is where we are now. If we don't bring in more people of good faith from across all parties and bring people back into the system through trust, through that investment in these communities, we're gonna lose our republic. We didn't keep it. And then y'all are gonna have some challenges because uh, I, know you, I know this is a different topic, but climate change is coming for us all. And it's gonna be pleasant in Canada for some time to come. And you have lots and lots of water. And our plague states down south and our western states are going to be on fire and droughts, hurricanes, floods, and of course the coast flooding. We're going to need a place to go. Canada looks pretty good to me. Well, let, let's take it one step at a time, shall we? I know, I, <laughs> that, that let's, I think that's the way to go. It, it's always one step, two steps, one step back. Yeah. That's the story of history. And, and hopefully we'll get to the point where more of us are involved in the process such that we can make sure that we all are lifted up as opposed to being zero-sum. And I think that's a perfect way to end the episode in that because you came in to give us that reality check and you painted a dire picture 
But at the same time, there's a little bit of hope in that, that yeah. we can come together, we can work together, Code Fair America and the summit and everything else that's happening around the world in these efforts is really towards reversing that trend and coming together forward and building yeah. if better. You go a couple centuries back, it looked a lot worse. Oh, right? No doubt. You go a couple millennia back, it looks really bad. So the story of our country, but also humanity, is to improve over time. It's just that uh, when you challenge entrenched power systems, they tend to hit, strike back. And we are living through that right now. And we don't know how it's going to go. The good news is there's an awful lot of good people of good faith who are fundamentally decent, who want the same opportunities that their fathers and their mothers had, or more than them in the case of the mothers. Mm. And if we can invest in things like paid family leave and subsidized childcare, something Canada's well ahead of the U.S. on, frankly, every OECD country is ahead of us on that. No, it's, it's really bad here. Um, then that would unlock a lot of labor force participation and talent. Uh, we'll see whether our Congress does that or not. Um, they had a flub last year. But um, if we can see advances like that and see the vote upheld, there's still lots of reasons to hope that our best days are ahead of us. Derek, you got any final thoughts as to... Essentially, Alex just gave us a book in like 25 yeah, I minutes say, there. I, I know what I'm going to do in for the next couple of weeks, writing this up quickly as I can and <laughs> publishing it. Uh, no, I, 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 I really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you so much. The, the, the idea I'm taking away is this idea of like um, giving people an opportunity to participate almost like in that uh, civics, like two mm -hmm. or three years yeah. investing in that sweat equity program yeah. um, is something that I think it's brilliant. And I'm like, okay, how do we incorporate that? Well, so. I'm, I'm cribbing from what we just heard on stage from Amanda Renteria, right? Yeah. When, when you involve communities in being part of the solution and you build with them, that gives them equity and a reason to trust you. Because even if their trust is really short over time, if you keep showing up where they are and telling them you love them and you want the best for them and you give them the opportunity to deliver, you brought one person back into the fold of believing in government and services. Every time someone doesn't have success, has a bad website, has someone who turns them away, who can't get into a meeting, who can't access information, you lose somebody. And we need to win as many of those hearts, minds back to us as we can because we're going to need them. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of The Simpsons, and there's a moment where Bart says, can't win, don't try. And there's a lot of people right now that probably feel that way about can't win, don't try. And we got to show them there is a way to win, especially if you try. Just it's a little bit harder than, than it's probably ever been. So, but, oh, sorry, Alex. I, I'm being mindful of time, but you keep giving us more time here. Uh, finish your thought, please. Go ahead. Um, well, I'm, I'm thinking about The Simpsons now. Um, what we don't need is a monorail. No, watch, watch out! Watch out for the monorail people coming into the community. Right. Instead, look for the people who might be focused upon elevating the curbs and putting in bike paths and getting police to actually use them so that they respect fellow travelers. Something we think a lot about here in D.C. Um, but. The reality for people living in the ground is that community issues aren't something we can ignore, right? Sometimes people try, we walk past, right? But the, the best way we move forward is together. And the, the more we allow uh, those who introduce doubt or lies and reasons to hate someone else, the lesser, lesser chance we have, to, I think, to get to some of the, the really existential issues we face as humanity, right? And we can get way into environment or healthcare here, but like, there's really dire stuff coming through. 
if aliens discover us, we're probably pooched. We gotta hope that they're friendly, because we know the history of colonialism isn't great. If, if we get colonized, we're food or energy or whatever it happens to be. I vote Kodo. Yeah, yeah I vote Kodo. I, I, I welcome our, our, our overlords. Nobody heard that. Um, so the, my sense is that there's a there's an opportunity, but we have to bet on ourselves more. And we have to bet that given people to embrace the better angels of our natures, that they will. More of them than not. Mm. Trust that there'll need to be checks and systems to correct against human nature and corrections, because there's direness there too. But the, the, the message that we're getting here out of the civic tech world, open government world, democracy world, is that this is threatened, but there's huge opportunity at scale to bring people in, afforded by the changes in technology. And there's no one coming to help. It's dire. Right? If we don't all do this together and give people ways to plug into it, we're going to watch our country shift into something else. I'm not as worried about Canada, to be honest. You all are uh, a little more stable than us for lots of reasons. Um, but I am concerned about what's happening in Europe and Africa and South America and Latin America and in our own country. Um, and obviously that comes across here. I wish I, I, wish I felt hyperbolic. Instead, I, I just feel like this is how it is, and that if we don't look at it directly and talk about what's brought us to this pass, and invest right now in rebuilding trust through delivery, through making people part of the solution, we're gonna be sad about the outcomes, right? Well, that's why we keep working hard. And, right. and I think more than anything else, people like, you know, that are here at the conference, it's, we gotta show the way. There you go. For a lot of people that are in the can't win, don't try mentality. Yeah. And we need people like you, Alex, to paint the picture for us a lot of the times because we don't know what that future should look like. And we want to thank you so much for visiting with us today. Absolutely. And a uh, big, big round of applause for wow. us. Thank you so, so much, much, Alex. Thanks yes. to you guys, too. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And I'm sure I'll get to see you online. And maybe in Ottawa again sometime soon. Without a doubt. So I'm just going to wrap up our conversation here. Again, if you're listening in, like, share, tell your friends. Reach out to us about episodes or stories or guests you'd like to have feature. Derek, anything? Just, uh, you know. Keep it open. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that's our typical sign up <laughs> right. to let's make it open.